This is DeFi by Stake Capital, a podcast in exploration of the DeFi ecosystem from the mouth and personal experiences of its builders and protagonists. In this season's final episode, we will have a forecast of the trends of 2024 from the legal and regulatory point of view with Anne-Sophie Klutz, General Counsel at Summer Finance and Affiliate Lecturer at Cambridge University. Welcome, Anne-Sophie. It's, uh, it's great to have you here for the last episode of Define uh, Podcast. And at last, we talk about the legal aspects of, of, of crypto as a new bull run is starting with many new challenges and many new players, stable coins, etc. But we will dig into this matter w- with you. Before further ado, can you please introduce yourself and your role at uh, Summer Finance? Sure. So I'm Anne-Sophie Klutz. Um, I'm the general counsel at Summer.fi, a front-end um, DeFi company based in the UK. Um, and I'm responsible for the legal strategy of Summer.fi. So it means keeping up to date with the legal developments, UK, US, EU, a bit everywhere in the world as it goes for DeFi front-ends. Um, so it's general legal strategy, trying to find out um, where the product meets the legal requirements, where we should be heading, what the opportunities are. And then, of course, all the other legal questions that come up in the team from the mundane to the very special ones for which nobody has, seems to have an answer. But it's really, really fun <laughs> to have all these questions from, you know, amazing team, amazing, amazing engineers and try to find out together how we can build given the legal uncertainty that we have. Nice, nice. So as we enter the new year, uh, and this year is a, is a special year, is the dragon year. So what are your forecasts in terms of how the crypto space will adapt to these increasingly unstable global geopolitics that we are somehow acknowledging? So what's your, what's your take on, on the present It's a really good question, I think. And just last week, I was reading this DeFi report that came out from the US CFTC, one of the US regulators. And it's the first time that I see so explicitly a mention by a US regulator saying, look, hey, we cannot lose our global dominance, our dollar dominance, our fintech dominance. So I think even though we knew many countries were vying for crypto dominance or trying to improve or strengthen their dominance through crypto or through stable coins, whatever it is, the fact that you now see that so explicitly in policy documents is really interesting. And of course, you have countries like, say, Hong Kong and well, countries like Korea, Singapore, and then there's Hong Kong as well, trying to vie for crypto, uh, crypto companies. You have the UAE, then you have, of course, the EU and the, and, and the UK post-Brexit tussling a little bit of who will be having the best framework to attract crypto companies. Within the EU, you have France and Ireland trying to vie for it, or who's going to be the next fintech hub within the EU. Um, so there's, there's the aspect of different con- countries trying to get the crypto companies into their jurisdiction to make sure that they do better than others. Um, and then there's, of course, a question of like how can certain jurisdictions impose their rules on others? Um, you see it very clearly in the US, the dominance of US regulations across any kind of financial transaction, even outside of US borders. There is a clear question, a clear interest from the US to keep that dominance there. And you see it, the same question with the stable coins, like which stable coins will dominate the global payments of the future? Will it be the US dollar, the USDC, something similar? Will it be another stable coin? And you clearly see those geopolitical tensions playing out behind the scenes. It's not necessarily clear to anybody who's just interested in Bitcoin and holding, but you see so many geopolitical tensions 
um, being played out as we see the frameworks change, as we see the incentives behind the scenes change, as we see which countries are pushing forward their own national champions, just as is the case with AI. France has their champion, US has their champion, Germany has their champion. So for crypto companies, how to navigate it, I think for now, I think many of the users will want to see tools that help them insulate them a little bit from that tension, trying to find tools that are not being gatekept, um, trying to find infrastructure that's more open. Um, but of course, regulators will catch up and will be more and more stringent, especially as real world assets are entering on the on-chain world to make sure that the gatekeeping comes back. And I think for now, the users are looking for something that's more open to protect themselves against the risks of geopolitical tensions or local troubles. Uh, and that, that there's a phase where I think users will want that and crypto companies are trying to offer that. You see that a little bit with the rebasing tokens, where people want a yield token um, that is still linked to the US dollar, but maybe not gatekept in the way that other yield products in the traditional financial world are gatekept. Um, but at the same time, you'll, I'm sure you'll see the regulators catch up and say, hey, wait a minute, this is not what we anticipate. We, we like the fact that there's some technolo technological infrastructure that's open, but we don't like the fact that maybe some people are getting you know, ahead of us and we're going to really make sure that we gatekeep whatever products we see ex being explored in DeFi industry. And I think that the rebasing tokens are one of those interesting examples where you see potentially the dominance of one token in the world and how different jurisdictions will um, will react to that. Same with stablecoins. Will we allow, in Europe, will we allow uh, a circle to dominate the Euro stablecoin market? Will we want that to be a European issuer? And I'm sure many jurisdictions will have the same question. So I think stablecoins are one of the areas where we'll definitely see that geopolitical tension um, intensifying. It's always been there. It hasn't been as pressing, maybe, as it has, as it is now. Yeah. Uh, do you think these? I mean, this new bull run seems to be driven exactly by the the, the, the entering of institutional money and yeah. you know the stablecoin mm -hmm. scenario, etc. Do you see this as a negation in terms of all the principles that we've been following, or is it like a necessary um, AB <laughs> uh, product diversion of, of of the crypto philosophy to a diversification, a contamination? Call it as you want. Uh, what's what's your take on uh, on the institutionalization of crypto? It was inevitable, I think. Mm -hmm. um, coming from a DeFi sector, from a DeFi team, from a DeFi ideology, um, I hope that DeFi will not be overrun by the traditional financial institutions in some way, because of course, once the big money comes in, um, and once the regulators seem to be more more comfortable to embrace Bitcoin and ETFs once institutions like BlackRock and Fidelity are behind it. I would I would find the shame that then the whole sector is overtaken by the same system that DeFi rallied against. I'm sure there is interaction that is very fruitful and that will help expand certain products and will also show that yeah it's something very reputable. These big players have done their due diligence and retail investors can have exposure to it. I just hope that it doesn't mean that either through regulation or through a regulatory stamp of approval through ETFs that everything else in DeFi would be overrun or would be undermined or would become a fringe phenomenon. I think there's so much going on in DeFi and I really hope that there will be an aspect of DeFi that can keep that spirit up of it doesn't have to be gatekept, it doesn't have to be issued or controlled by the traditional financial institutions, even though I can see the, the advantage of having some of these bigger players saying, yes, we, we looked at it, we believe in it, we believe in the future. I can see why that's 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 good in some ways. 
I still hope that for whatever we're discussing today, whether it's you know payment rails on chain, whether it's stable coins, whether it's anything else, that is that DeFi won't simply be overtaken by the traditional financial institutions. That's a little bit my concern that once that ball starts rolling, that there's a wave coming that will be overtaking everything else that's also useful that we've seen in being created by smaller groups driven by different motives and incentives. Yeah, my take on on what you were talking about is that the the entering of stable coins is good as long as they don't turn into CBDCs and the whole <laughs> we have DeFi on one side, pure DeFi, pure DeGen and on the other side we have uh, pure degenerative uh, centralized digital money, okay? So maybe stable coins represent the the right medium to bring into finance, traditional finance, the automation and the transparency of crypto and also to bring into DeFi those um, necessary evils or values, depending on wh- where you see it from, KYC and, um, and etc. Yeah, correct. And I'm not too concerned about CBDCs. I don't see that as any threat. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it happening in China. It's different. They're obviously there's already much. They're, they're much ahead uh, of everybody else. Um, in UK, in the EU, many other countries, I don't see CBDCs as this as at this point as a serious competitor to stablecoins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as an affiliate uh, lecturer at uh, in DLT at Cambridge, uh, uh, what do you think is the the key points needed in order to train a new generation of regulators who are more up-to-date uh, in comparison to the seasoned one that we have to deal with. I'm not trying to offend them, but this is a generational gap and it's totally understandable. So how do you think the new generation of crypto lawyers will have to mediate between the obsolescence of uh, regulators' skill set and, and also the, the new frontier, which is some, sometimes a bit of a wild west. Uh, definitely two different worlds. I see the two worlds coming together a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I think many of the regulators have really tried to expand their teams and get more knowledge on board, talk to the industry, at least in UK, I've seen that more, um, try to understand from the industry a couple of years ago was much more, okay, industry here and the regulators there, different side. And there was a lot of talking about each other, but not to each other. I think that's slowly changing. Uh, and when I see it with my own students, when you come with a lawyer's hat or with a regulator's hat, you come with a set of principles and you come with a set of things that have been hammered in your head. Like you have to do this and that's bad and that's good. And of course, the press that we saw around many crypto asset projects has been quite negative, which also means that even my own students who are interested in the subject often come with this idea of, oh, it's all bad, it's all scams, all speculation. So I think two things that can happen there, first of all, just numbers, like, okay, what is the actual number of illicit activities versus non-illicit activities? Then maybe Mm -hmm. that's very surprising to many people. Um, The second thing is just having enough technical knowledge. Um, I think the discussions I had with regulators, say, two, three years ago, were still very much explaining basic concepts. And my impression is by now, those basic concepts are better understood. But of course, the industry moves forward. So it, the concepts that we had to talk about two years ago are no longer the concepts we have to talk about right now. Uh, but I think, as you said, it's also a generational gap. For many regulators, crypto was just one of the many things they were doing. They're understaffed, they're overworked. Sometimes they just don't have the resources um, to to learn about things like we are learning full-time about something. So I give them a bit of slack 
think, okay, for many of them, it was just not easy to catch up. Right now, I think there's so many resources to learn from that understanding technically how it works still to me remains the number one priority. And I think even in the UK, like industry associations are really like the UK Crypto Business Council is really trying to explain not just what is blockchain but how can it be used and it's not just about speculation and scams it's about you know on-chain gaming it's about art it's about communicating on social protocols that are not gatekept by face by meta or facebook or something else so it's trying to explain first of all what are the possibilities and many of these possibilities are possibilities that i think many regulators and policymakers are very eager to discover like in uk gaming is a big thing so if you can explain blockchain is not just about speculation but there's something into the gaming and there's something here for the gaming industry there's something that you can do with nfts for ticketing there are all these different things that we see people talk about to regulators and policymakers. then oftentimes they go oh okay we hadn't thought about that we've only seen one aspect of it so it's about showing the possibilities in many different areas it's showing the technical concepts that just need to be understood and that's i think where i hope some of my students who go into regulatory roles they can help um, and it's about numbers, trying to gather numbers and say, well, wait a minute, maybe the assumptions with which regulators come to discussion, some of those may be correct and some of those may be incorrect. So let's just correct the statistics. Let's correct the numbers. Let's gather the relevant data to show what's actually going on and not what we may perceive as being as going on, just looking at press clippings. Um, there was one more thing I want to say, and I forget it. <laughs> but I think really understanding what it is like and what it does and does not do is very important. Like we, the, and that's I think where crypto lawyers are so important. Like trying to find, even as a company like ours, trying to find external counsel who really understand DeFi, who understand what a flash loan is, who understand what a, a self-hosted wallet is. All these things. If you have excellent lawyers who know how regulators think, who know the law. And who also understand technology, those are for us the best advocates or the best people to help bridge that gap between technological understanding and understanding not just the laws, but also what those laws are aimed to achieve. And often that's, it's not just the regulator's role to say stop to anything. They also want to mm -hmm. make sure there is some innovation. They want to make sure that they're not being, um, oh, not being outcompeted by another jurisdiction. So if, if you have good crypto lawyers who really understand what we're talking about in DeFi, and it can translate the technological innovations to somebody with a very legal regulatory background, yeah. that's amazing. But also since uh, developers are becoming more and more accountable, especially in the European um, legal framework, you know, they, they are, uh, if you write that contract, then you are accountable for it, or you have to put the kill switch to that contract. I see, I see a convergence between lawyers and developers, especially Solidity developers. And do you think that lawyers should be trained in at least, for example, Solidity reading or, or Solidity proofreading or something? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I've thought about it myself a lot. Like some of my students ask, like, should we learn Solidity? Should we learn something else? Should we just focus on the law? I think having a basic understanding of Solidity or another programming language is so important to just understand what code can do, what software can do and how it works. And for me, I know very, very little and I've always seen it as a barrier. I've also, I also understand the standpoint of others who say, look, wait a minute, if you're a lawyer, just focus on what you're good at, focus on understanding the law and then somebody else who's much better skilled at solidity can explain you solidity. But I'm maybe again, that's my training as a lawyer. I like to verify. So if somebody tells me, well, it's there in the code and this is how it works, I like to understand like, 
wait a minute, is that really how it works? So I think it's highly, highly useful for many students and from anybody in this in this field. If you want to be a good crypto lawyer, mm-hmm. to have a basic understanding, just to read, you know, to understand what is, you know, the different functions and different, the, the, the how a hierarchy works in that language and how yeah. the sequence of transactions work. It's so important. Come on, tell us. Have you used GPT already to... <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. You're giving me an idea. I should. <laughs> as an assistant, as a tech assistant for, for auditing, etc. Um, switching topic, your work at Summer Finance, without infringing any NDA, of course, can you share some highlights or some horror stories from the last bear market or even some fun stories, whatever? I think most of the, well, the sad stories are... I think this the stories that most crypto companies have gone through. Like the good thing about this bear market was with our team, many other teams that this crystal clear focus on okay, what's our product? Who are our users? What how can we build the best possible product for our users? And that once the noise goes, you really go back to the basics. Okay, what is it that we're doing? Who are we doing it for? What are we doing now? What are we going to do next? And that's a great I think the great story where everybody just all these minds converge on okay, let's build this. We need to get it's it's no longer fluffy it's very very focused which was great and then of course you think okay we have all these great ideas we are now very clear about the strategy we want to know what we're going to do next we see these developments we see the future we think and then okay we want to build this now we need to go fundraising because we need different people in our team more people in the team to help us build this and then i think that that's the story the the not so nice part of the story where you think oh wait a minute <laughs> maybe it's not a good time to go fundraise now but we have all these great ideas and we know we can do this and we know it's going to be really important i think that was the most that was both the beautiful side and the challenging side of this bear market just waiting 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 once you think okay we nailed down what we need to do now we just need to get the funds to do it and who is still there to believe in us and to believe mm-hmm. in what we do next um and i think for our team just seeing that everybody is here is here because I really believe in it. And that has been amazing. And the users who are there are the users who still very much believe in it. And that was amazing to see. So there are no particular episodes that we think, okay, other than you, know, it's sometimes it's painful to see everything going down, all the metrics going down, thinking, mm, okay. But everybody we stuck with DeFi is there because I really want to. And that also means that you have an amazing team to come out of a bear market like this and really be prepared and focus going ahead. And I think looking at the other teams who are still there, It's just amazing to see the commitment, the talent, and the ambition. So I'm, I'm fully positive about what we can yeah, do next. I've seen quite a high level of retention in the professional fauna in crypto throughout the bear markets. Like It's very hard for, for someone to say, Anna, prices have gone down, I'm, just, I'm leaving, I'm going to do AI. Well, AI is very attractive <laughs> right now. But, you know, some people also are mongering about 2024 being the, the, the bare year of AI for, for many reasons, which brings me uh, somehow to the, to the next question. What do you think will be the role that DLT, blockchain and crypto, will play in the evolution of, the, of AI? The ideology or the, the hope in DeFi was to get to that point of decentralization where you're not being limited by gatekeepers to some extent. And I see the same questions in the DLT X AI intersection. Like how can you make sure that it's not a handful of companies that own either the cloud space or that own the data? Um, and that may be more of an 
ideological pers perspective rather than a legal perspective. But of course, for mm -hmm. legal perspective as well, when you think about, I'm trained in competition law as well, antitrust. So if you think about the concentration of market power and what that can do about prices, what that can do about creating barriers yeah. to entry, um, and the fact that DLT can help overcome those regulatory aims. So basically, we've railed against big tech and too big to fail for so long. And then you see that certain decentralized technologies can help to prevent or to mitigate too big to fail or the big tech. And this is one of those intersections. I, I really hope that it will help break down those barriers because you see the numbers of the investment, the number of data that some of these big companies in AI have. And you think, well, wait a minute, what does that mean for the future? And having it on DLT, having a decentralized compute, having decentralized data, having the, what you mentioned about rewarding people who, who share their data. Of course, there are some of these privacy data protection issues. Um, but on the upside, there's a lot of, you know, regulatory aims that can be achieved that way when you think about breaking down barriers making it easy for other companies to get into the field maybe also just making people giving them better ownership of their own data and deciding when and how and how much to share so i'm very very positive about that and i'm sure that of course there will be some legal questions and some legal difficulties to overcome i'm confident we can overcome that and i think the regulatory aims will very much be achieved if we can achieve if we can have more decentralization in the ai computer and AI industry. Yeah. And right now we are experiencing AI as a pure on, on a pure data and content generation side when AI will be more publicly deployed also for functions. Like the first thing that I see is like when AI will be deployed at the security level that, that I think it's going to be or at the management of violence and forces etc uh, how will it be regulated and who will be the one in charge to regulate will it be the citizens like on a democratic basis fully telling AI what to do and how to engage with different actions reactions etc or will it be again um, elites of people so it's very it's very interesting and I I, I don't see the dystopia anymore this sort of talks being a, as dystopian anymore I think it's it's futuring right now oh, yeah. RWAs um, RWAs are entering the market very in a very strong stance and um, of course uh, we have precious metals and currencies and real estate but I also think that given the interoperable possibilities, what other natures of RWAs you see possibly knocking at the door of the market soon? Do you mean so what type of assets could be yeah. put on chain? I mean, yeah. it's, it's endless what could be put on chain as long as you can maintain that link between the off-chain and the on-chain world. Um, what we see now is just a very simple example of the basically US dollars and giving some yield on that when you with these tokens like USDM backed finance securities bonds um, that the possibilities are endless it could be art it could be people talk about like these very expensive wines and vintage clothing whatever it is that you can think about I've had many discussions with other people saying, well, is it going to go as fast as we think it will be? And I think for the financial world, it can go really fast, especially when it comes to securities, bonds, a couple of other things. But from a regulatory perspective, from a legal perspective, for some of these items, you just we just have some legal questions that we need to resolve first before that can take off. You can always have experiments. You can have things that already are being piloted somewhere. Somebody tries it, see what happens. Um, but for many of these 
think for many of these questions, I think the, we can do it technically. Technically, that's not the mm -hmm. issue. Um, and someone will do it technically. Maybe they will scam a lot of people by promising it, and so they hurry up regulators to find out. <laughs> maybe in the end, all these scams are good. <laughs> Sorry, interrupted you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want, want to be on the receiving end of a scam, so I would never <laughs> no, say that course. if I was a victim. <laughs> uh, but it's true that once these things happen, that people start looking into it and say, okay, how can we improve it? Including the industry, the, the good players in the industry saying, okay, we really believe in this. We don't want people to give it a bad name. Let's see how we can work on it. Um, but for many of these questions, I think even silly questions, like in the UK, we had for a long time a question of, is Bitcoin even property? Things like that. Or can you even have a real world asset represented on a blockchain? Is a blockchain actually a, a legally accepted record of something? Mm -hmm. um, in most jurisdictions, I think most countries, those questions have been resolved, but on some they have not. So then the technology is not the only thing we have to think about. It's also like many of my colleagues are thinking about what are the, the legal implications of transferring something on chain? Who has ownership at any one time? Who has you know a right to claim something? Um, so I think some of those questions still need to be figured out. So I don't think there's a technical limitation. Um, I don't think there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of appetite to try new things, on put many new things on chain. And as lawyers, we always come say, well, wait a minute, let's think about this first and that first. We're always a, the difficult people saying, well, have you thought about that? And in the end, those legal questions will be resolved. It's not... It's, yeah. it's a matter of time. If the need is there, if the demand is there, we'll figure it out. Talking about um, mass adoption, you mentioned this uh, earlier. Uh, gaming, especially in the European scenario and uh, European regulations. Can you tell us a, a little bit about this peculiarly European scenario about gaming? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's really intriguing. I was reading uh, Colleen Sullivan's, Sullivan's um, long essay on Web3 gaming, on-chain gaming. Uh, and it's really, I, I really think that with on-chain gaming, there are many possibilities. It doesn't need to be, again, doesn't need to be just you, you have a token, but there are many things that you can do more for more fun, fun gameplay, just make things more fun. Um, and it's very different than the discussions we've seen about just, you know, sell a token and hey, it's great. Um, and in the EU specifically, there's been this question about, okay, you have the app store, you have all these developers who have to, they put their apps, they put their games on the app store. And then, you know, the app store takes their nice cut and their nice comfortable commission. And I think around 70% of the app store revenues come from gaming. So it's it's enormous. And now there's been this case where um, European authorities have said, well, made a minute app store, what you're doing with the app store rules, the commission and preventing a game developer from, you know, having the app somewhere else or taking taking your app users out of the app somewhere else. Um, so basically, there's a question of how much power can Apple have through the App Store and imposing their rules about commissions and what developers cannot, cannot do. And because authorities have looked at it and said, look, we think Apple, you are abusing that power and there are things you can no longer do in the EU. Basically, now there's this opportunity to have what they call sideloading side -loading of applications. So you mm -hmm. don't have to go... Some of the rules on the App Store will have to change for the EU. And that means if I'm a game developer and I'm not too happy that I have to give 30% of whatever payment is being made my app to Apple, but I want to make sure that I can you know, show my users, my players, that they can pay me in another way. It doesn't have to go through the App Store. If I want to do that, then I'll be very excited by this development in the EU where the regulator said, well, made a minute, apps, app, Apple, you cannot force developers to keep everything gatekept in that App Store 
to ask and commission everything that happens in the App Store and to prevent your users from being directed away from the App Store. Which means for a game developer, you can say, okay, I have my game, I offer it somewhere else, or maybe I'll offer it on the App Store, but I'll have my own payment rails. I'll make, I'll have a stablecoin payment in thing built into my game. I want all microtransactions in my game going through my own payment rails. I don't want it to go mm. through the App Store. And by the way, Apple, that means too bad for you, but you're not going to be able to charge your 30%. And so if you think about, I mean, think, because I'm still... Because for Web2 games, so Apple reroutes the pay, the payments through their own... Oh, wow, that's... I didn't know that. Well, I'm still learning about it, but again, I was reading this this uh, this long essay by Colleen Sullivan from Braven Howard, and she's really the game expert. And when I was reading through it, I thought, wow, that's amazing that any game developer could, you know, could in some ways be freed from this 30% rule from the App Store and the very strict rules that Apple has imposed. And if that's true in the EU, and then you think about game developers, doesn't matter on-chain or off-chain, but they just use a form of on-chain payment on which they do not owe the 30% to Apple because they make sure that the players pay in a different way, that could be huge. But wait, you're talking about the 30% to Apple at the game's purchase. You're not talking about in-game payments, like, for example, I have to, as a character, I have to pay the local oh, inventory. As well. That as well. Oh, ah, okay, that as well. Yeah. Okay. okay so the side loading, I mean, I would, whatever, whatever Apple can now charge a 30% off on, if you can, if you're allowed as a game developer to have another offer to your users or players to pay a different way, and if there's a way to um, to avoid paying that thirty percent, I can see why it would be appealing for any company. Say, hey, wait a minute, we'll build for the anyone offering games in the EU to have a different payment mechanism, and just make sure that you have uh, freedom away from Apple, that you can have something different than what we have now in the EU. And if it happens in the EU, then Maybe it can happen elsewhere too. Hmm. This is very interesting. So we move towards the the end of the interview. I have a solar punk question for you. Without mentioning your product, the product you work for, the service you work for, what would you suggest our audience to explore in the crypto space in 2024? I think I'm probably very biased to think anything with on-chain on-chain payment rails is going to be big, which also means the onboarding, how you how you get people onboarded into mm-hmm. anything with crypto, account abstraction, all those things, just to make sure that whenever you enter, it's just going to be much easier, much smoother, much more integrated than everything we've seen before. So I'm really excited about that. I think, well, I'm looking at account abstraction and some other things as things that I think everybody should really pay attention to. Um, and that's going to be really exciting for the next year and beyond. Um, so that's one of the main things I think I would be looking into. There are many, many things, but I think things like account abstraction, anything that makes it easier for people to interact with on-chain assets uh, is really, really exciting. Yeah. Have you tried the biometrics account abstraction uh, by Comith Connect? I haven't tried myself yet. No. Have you? We actually built something. Uh, we've um, we built a sort of um, web-free radio. You can listen to it without connecting your wallet. But if you want to interact with the ongoing show, you can basically with your fingerprint, you can generate a new wallet and um, interact with the the shows by clapping or, you know, just giving reactions, etc. It's just a, a very simple MVP to explore the new medias empowered by crypto. And Lunar Punk question instead. What do you think will be the next Black Swan event? What will it be about? 
my bet would be all these yield looping strategies and the leverage that at some point <laughs> <laughs> we figure out, oh, all these things are connected. So if one thing goes wrong somewhere, then it has all these knock-on effects. There could be others, of course. Um, but that's one thing that looking at history, thinking, okay, do we know enough of how these different things map to each other and uh, how these different assets are being used, maybe recycled in different ways across mm -hmm. the industry. Um, so that's one thing that I think could be a point that we uh, we need to address or we need to look into to see how what would happen if one of those wrapped staked products looping strategies if there would be something that goes wrong there what would be the implication maybe I'm too negative about that but yeah that's one thing that has been on my mind for a while well you're a lawyer I think it's exactly uh, comes <laughs> <laughs> I'm biased I'm completely yes. <laughs> Uh, okay, Anne-Sophie, thank you so much for your time. I have a last question for, uh, for you before we, we close the interview. I also read that you are um, a Kung Fu and Tai Chi practitioner and instructor. And um, uh, apart from the obvious stress release it brings, what is the lesson from the practice that, and from the philosophy, from Taoism, that you think that you would like to share with uh, maybe a too often forming crypto ecosystem <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think kung fu is great to overcome the fomo fomo noise everywhere i think it's focus discipline and grit focus so that the noise of all the fomo it's not even on your radar because you're just so focused on where you want to get to and mm -hmm. discipline to get there so don't be distracted by all the things that look very shiny but you don't really need them and they can distract you. Hmm. And then the grit that we see in a bear market, just keep going. If you really believe in something, you know where you want to go to, you know the steps that you need to take to get there. You have the right people around you, then just keep going. So I think those are big similarities with Kung Fu in, in everything you do in life, whether it's crypto and DeFi or something else. Okay. Thank you so much, Anne-Sophie. Thank you, Matteo. It was a pleasure to have you here. Likewise. Likewise.